And thus, if there are other entities or other dimensions or other things happening, it is possible for these things to come into our experience. Welcome back to another week of Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Gailey, joined by Adam Daniels and Luke Koch. Um, today, we have joining us again. Um, last time we had him on was probably, well, it seems like probably a couple of years ago now, uh, John H. Buchanan. Last time we had him on, we talked about Whitehead, and he had edited, co-edited a book on... Uh, consciousness and philosophy and fun things like that and in the meantime he has published the book he was working on processing reality finding meaning in death psychedelics and sobriety this one just came out earlier this year is that correct john uh last fall oh last fall so it's been uh yeah so it's been about a year that it's been out and um i just finished it and uh, Adam's been reading it, and we're all fans of Whitehead. And uh, you've got some very interesting stories. Yes, <laughs> John has some, some yes, yeah, some very interesting stories, which we'll get into. Um, well, so first, welcome to the show again, John. Thank you. It's great to be back with you guys. So the book is um, okay. Let me try to describe the book. So it's it's not a very long book. It's about two hundred and fifty pages uh, plus some extra material and it's on it's very much in the whiteheadian tradition so it's got a lot of process philosophy in there but it is not like um it's only 250 pages but it's still got a lot in it like there's no way that we can cover like a fraction of the ideas that john has in this book in this conversation so that's why i'm just going to go ahead and recommend that everyone read it and just treat the conversation we have as like a a little a little taste, a little tidbit of what uh, of what's in there, and the book is also not just a you know treatise on process philosophy or anything like that. Um, it's a very personal book. This is John's um, like John's story, and then how that gets tied all together um, for us and for him with uh, with philosophy and transpersonal psychology. So. John, maybe you could describe it in your own words. Like, what is this book? How did it? Uh, how did it come to be? And how did you kind of decide how to put it all together? It's a pretty good description. Thank you. I, um, you know, in a way, it's my attempt to popularize my dissertation. Which, so that was about thirty years ago. So it took a while. You know, the first time I took my which was, my dissertation was basically on the same material on why on process thought and transpersonal psychology, but it was it was very long and even more technical. And uh, I tried tried to rearrange it and put it into sort of a, a different order and better. And then I sent it off to uh, David Ray Griffin. And he said, why don't you start from scratch? So, so, <laughs> so my working title has been from scratch for since then. And I guess about 10 or 15 years ago, I, I was, you know, I've been writing papers and doing other things, then I'd get back to it. And I thought, you know, since Whitehead focused, uh, you know the starting point is our is our own experience. You know he's he's like Descartes in that way, although a, a, a twist on that. Um, so I thought, well, you know, maybe if I talk about my own experiences, and uh, that led to me investigating some of these ideas uh, of uh, existential and uh, epistemological and 
metaphysical and cosmological nature. Maybe if I talk about my own experience, how I got into those ideas, it would help people. It would make it more interesting and also see how maybe other people had similar interests. It, it, would, it would make it more accessible that way. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I think a lot of that worked and some of it I still have left over from my dissertation that I never successfully made as accessible as I would have liked. But <clears throat> Whitehead, you know, I also wanted to go fairly deeply into Whitehead's ideas for the people who are already familiar with Whitehead. So there'd be something new. And I, I, I think there's some very, um, some very important ways that Whitehead explicates um, not an ordinary experience and psychedelic states uh that that um that that i think you know that i think i think is very promising in a lot of ways mm-hmm. so anyway i constructed the book around five uh pivotal experiences in my life and uh, my father's death at an early age and uh and getting into drugs and alcohol and then uh psychedelics and some a powerful psychedelic experience and then finally running into trouble with my love with the drugs and psychedelics and finally having to choose between those and 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 living basically so, so i've been uh, sober for a long time and as i tell I, I, every year i think about doing psychedelics but then i say not yet <laughs> not yet not yet I, i've got some things i need to do first before i take that that chance no that's good <laughs> well the i i totally i think you did a good job of um kind of popularizing the ideas because you can take you can take a book like process and reality which is really um technical and generalized and it's you know it's not not written for a general audience right you're not gonna pass this on just to a random person on the street and and blow their mind with it necessarily you know john cobb who's you know one of the great uh whitehead interpreters especially theologically i heard him say once that he wouldn't even recommend that a professional philosopher try to read process (laughs) and reality without some help from someone who's familiar with it already yeah Uh so it it doesn't it doesn't help that Whitehead starts it all with this like endless list of definitions where <laughs> yeah. it's like, oh my God, you know, like. <laughs> I think he later on said he, he was he was kind of embarrassed by his hubris and thinking that he could lay it out like a mathematical formula to start with. But, you know, that was his training. He was a mathematician, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah, that, is, that is a an overwhelming beginning. I just skip over right over that part. <laughs> So, so one approach would could be to pre- present the technical, you know, philosophical arguments and details, and then say, "Oh, and here's some application for it." But what you've done is kind of turned that process around and started with the phenomena, started with the experience, like you said, um, which is the process that kind of led Whitehead to develop his philosophy. Is he was starting with experiences and then laying out all of his. Um, you know, all his speculative philosophy about those experiences. But so what you've, you've kind of given an inside look at that process itself. So you start with the experience, you lay out all these, you know, crazy psychedelic experiences that you had and then say, okay, well that's, that's the experience. And now, now look at how this can fit into this philosophical framework. And isn't that nice? You know, (laughs) doesn't it all fit together very nicely? Right. So I think that that's a, I think it's a really good approach. Um, um, yeah, it's a really good approach for such difficult material. Um, it's not, and it's not just like a, a simplification. Like, oh, here, let me try to rewrite Whitehead in in terms that are, you know, more, you know, simpler for you know people who aren't familiar with it. Although there is that, but it's it's um, 
uh, I'd say it's it's just much um, a much more kind of integrated way of of um, of getting across the ideas. So so yeah, good job. Thank you. Um, I was appreciative appreciative to hear that you'd finished it because I've run into quite a few people who say, "Yeah, I've been reading your book. I'm not done yet, but I've been reading it." <laughs> so, <laughs> well, kudos so, to you. I, I was I was guilty of that because I read the first um, oh, I think the first eight chapters it's um it's 12 chapters so yeah i i'd read the first eight chapters and then for whatever reason just earlier this year i just had something else come up so i just put the book down and and then didn't pick it up for another few months and then just tore through the last few chapters um but so uh, you know not to say that's that's not a a diss of the book or anything like that. I literally just put it down with the plan to get back to it. And, uh, as soon as I picked it back up, you know, it, it came right back, but, um, uh, that's how almost all my reading goes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do that a lot, so. <laughs> but maybe we can, uh, maybe we can get into, let's get into some of those experiences because, um, before we, before we started recording, you know, Adam made a, a little joke that uh, well, that you've had quite some interesting experiences, right? <laughs> we were talking about it, um, and maybe we can start with um, something from near the end of the book um, as a way into um, into your past, because you mentioned you know you mentioned right now that you know in the early in this earlier part of your life you were doing a, a lot of drugs and alcohol, and um, and there's a there's a funny. Well, it's it's probably funny in retrospect, and it's it's funny reading it. Um, story about I think it was when you went to rehab that final time, and was it the doctor for the doctor that you had to list all of the the drugs that you'd used at various times? Am I getting that wrong? What was it, the, what it, was the it wasn't my last that? rehab. It was actually the first okay. real treatment center. Oh, yes. Okay, the first one. So, well, just tell that tell that little story about what the <laughs> how that went. Well, at that point, I, I yeah, I realized since I'd been basically going to DTs before I got there that I was in a lot of trouble with alcohol. But you know, I'd, I'd done quite a few drugs, but I really didn't feel like I was addicted to those. You know, I thought alcohol was the problem. So, the counselor down in Sioux City, Iowa, where I'd flown down to, um, said, "Well, why don't you make a list of all the all the drugs you've used?" You know, so I was kind of you know I was kind of proud of it. So I was you know, making this long list of things I'd taken. And he, and he looked at it and said, I don't even know what some of these are, you know, and uh, and it, it was my first real confrontation with the fact that the reason I wasn't physically addicted to those particular drugs was because I was doing other things and I could substitute and I always had the alcohol in the background. So I it was my beginning to realize that I, I had a problem with those substances, too, but um now, not, you know, nowadays, my list would look pretty short, probably, you know, there's so many designer drugs, and, you know, mm -hmm. ketamine wasn't even around, or think, fortunately, crack. Um, but it, in those days, apparently, it was fairly impressive. In, mm -hmm. in a, in a pr impressive. Yeah, yeah, that kind of impressive. Well, I think that uh, that goes into kind of the duality of um, of drug use and especially like psychedelics that you get in, into in the book is because for a lot of people like yourself, it was this, um, kind of mind opening and mind blowing experience. But on the other hand, um, it can come with a lot of, um, you know, less positive things, um, like the, the, just the whole addiction spiral and the, and well, 
maybe maybe you could talk about that. What what do you see as kind of the the pitfalls of of drug use and psychedelics? And then what 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 do you what have you personally seen to be the possible like you know positives in your life? How would you categorize that or you know tease that out? Well, in the positives, uh, it you know completely shifted my understanding of the world and what was possible and really brought me out of what I think was a uh, latent depression for my father's um, sudden death. Um, you know, it just, you know, both sort of physically and psychologically opened me up in a way, you know, it didn't solve those problems, but it gave me a, a sense that there was, there were some, some possibilities I hadn't even thought of entertaining or except when reading, you know, comic books or science fiction. So it was, mm-hmm. it was a very, very exciting to feel that the world of, that was much deeper and uh wider than i than i thought so there there are a lot of you know and you know you know kind of get sort of like as i probably quote kant in there it woke me from my dogmatic oops hold on one second i must have hit something here i think Uh, that's uh that's a good quote from kant you know from the dogmatic oops (laughs) sorry about that i Somehow no, the right. Alan Parsons project Eye in the Sky came on my headphones. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be careful what I'm touching. Um, yes, <laughs> woke me from my dogmatic slumber. Yes. Mm. Um, you know, on the downside, if, if you happen to be a, uh, have an addictive personality, then, you know, any drug you're taking is going to probably get out of control in some way. Um, back in the late 80s, when I was studying with Stan Groff, he said he was surprised. He really thought that it was a, that psychedelics were not a drug that people could could abuse or get addicted to because you know they're so powerful. You take it and you don't want to. Oh, I think I'll take some more. Right? You know, it's sort of self limiting thought. But you know, he'd encountered. Yeah, recently he'd encountered some people that were running into trouble with psychedelics, and I don't know what he would have thought about microdosing. You know, you, you know, I mean, people, hmm. you know, people drink every day and it's not a problem. But other people, when they're drinking every day, it's it is. Um, I have you heard of the semantrics? I've met these two women over in Exeter, England, at a conference we put on there, and they're doing this uh, podcast where they're looking at psychedelics and language and and multiple perspectives. and And they had a woman on um, from England who had been studying the problems arising from ketamine use, uh, and apparently brightness is quite rampant. And they have some joke about everyone sitting on pillows down there because it hit, one of its side effects is a prolapsed anus. So it's uh, so there's you know apparently almost almost anything can get you into trouble if you take too much of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, psychedelics in themselves, um, if not used in a proper set and setting, are such a powerful psychoactive substance that. You know, it can call people can get into real psychological trouble with them very easily. You know, a, a lot mm-hmm. of people. You know, I, I tell about how excited I am. And they go, well, you know, I stopped using it because I had a bad trip. And, you know, that's, that's pretty frequent. I hear that. So um, they, mm-hmm. they need to be treated with great respect. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned Stan Groff, and you are a holotropic breathwork um, like practitioner. And so that's one of the, one of the features of the one of the features I like about the book is that um, I, I think probably some people might have the impression that psychedelics are the only way to like enter a non-ordinary 
state of consciousness. And like my personal perspective, like I don't, I, I don't do any psychedelics. I haven't, I've, I've never actually done any psychedelics, but I guess my, my personality has been more, more open to, to some of the, um, realizations, I guess, that people get from psychedelics. And so, I mean, I, I would like read Carlos Castaneda or something like that back as a teenager and be like, oh, wow, you know, I, I totally believe this, you know, even though, you know, it was probably a, a lot of fiction in there, but the, you know, the whole, <laughs> like, I, I can see this actually happening. So, um, but there are, there are, there are not kind of, I'd say natural, what by natural, I mean, without ingesting like a foreign substance, there are like techniques and, and ways of kind of approaching similar states of consciousness and i think that for a lot of people like that's probably um well for a lot of people that's probably a more healthy way into it um you know to to avoid the possible psychological you know the the bad trips and the possible psychotic breaks or the the possible addiction spirals like you said unless psychedelics are you know taken or administered in a in a in a controlled setting where people know what's going on and and are like supervised to you know, to, to, to make a, you know, as safe an experience as possible, you know, maybe for, for the people that, you know, that are, that are potentially at risk of having like a very negative experience, maybe start out with something like, um, well, like what, what, uh, what did you discover like in this, in the, the period of sobriety and researching and experimenting with, you know, different things to achieve states? Well, I think if you're going to actually start with a more mild drug, from what I, I, I wasn't privy to it in my day, but from what I hear, MDMA or ecstasy is a, is a drug that sort of opens the heart. And although it's, it's a bit of an, you know, it's an amphetamine also, so you need to be a little bit careful, but um, it's, it's a considerably gent gentler introduction into a psychedelic state. But, you know, I mean, more, Getting back, I think, to the essence of your question, um, you know, I studied with Stan Groff. I did a three-year training group with him in holotropic breathwork, and he was on my dissertation committee. And I, I read his book back at uh, New College. Um, I don't think I mentioned it in my, maybe I do mention it in my book. I, in that, he mentions that the high-dose psychedelic sessions could help with alcoholism, which I already recognized I had a problem. So I got six sets of blotter. I was going to take them all. And I lost four of them, you know, which is just, so I never tried to fully tried the experiment, but I was reading his book and I found his, his work so, so very helpful for in maybe two primary ways. One, it describes this broad range of experience that people have in non-ordinary states and psychedelic states. And thus it gives kind of like, oh, well, I had that experience, but so have hundreds of other people. And and it's sort of that it kind of um, uh, made me feel like this is more normal than I thought it was, and and perhaps it's also a real part of you know uh, some part of reality that I should be taking more se serious account of, and not just dismissing as hallucination or mm -hmm. or uh, well that was my trip, you know. Um, but the other part, he goes into quite a bit of discussion, as do other people, but. He does it in a very nice way of that people have been exploring non-ordinary states since as far back as we can go. I mean, even in the shaman's graves from 30,000 years ago, they find psychedelic plants, you know, it, it buried with the shamans. But people, you, people use drumming, they use dancing, there's, you know, all the forms of meditation, there's sensory deprivation. There, we have a 
we have a place here to do sensory deprivation tanks here in Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, you know, there's there's uh, you know hypnosis. I mean, there's so many alternative ways of going into uh, non-orders. You know, they're really developing a lot of like light and sound technology now. I haven't found anything I find. I've tried a few and they don't seem particularly effective for me, but I'm I'm kind of a hard case of moving me into altered states, which is why I think I gravitated to stronger substances to open me up. Mm-hmm. But yes, you know, there's all these all these ways. I mean, you know, as kids, there we are, you know, on merry-go-rounds and spinning around and, you know, altering our altering our states, you know. You know, we, we, you know, it's just, a, I think it's a natural thing for people to want to explore these spaces. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe uh, we can go a bit uh, in the direction of like, what is the relation between like uh, altered states and let's say our, our regular um, reality? Because uh, um, people often talk about, you know, like that they have like a kind of a mystical experience or an epiphany uh, in these uh, altered states and they, they bring something back right a new insight about uh about reality but obviously we cannot live in altered states you know constantly it's more it seems to be more like something that um brings a new awareness um to to this reality so uh, i wanted to ask um because uh, you you talk in your book a lot about um the the metaphysics of it all and and how you how it changed your your view of reality so so what is uh, your take how how do these two worlds, if we want, uh, uh, fit together, or like, or put put another way, um, in our ordinary experience, um, what what is this? What does this tell us? You know about about even like our ordinary sensation, feeling, thought, um, that these realities seem to be possible. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, have you read any of uh, Stan, Stanislav? Have you read any of Stanislav Grof's books? No, no. He, ta- he one of the differentiations he likes is to uh, hylotropic versus holotropic. So hylotropic mm-hmm. is the everyday everyday experience, and the holotropic is he sees as these healing and opening up non-ordinary states. Um, so moving towards the whole. Um, I'm not sure how far you can go with that differentiation, except uh, I, I was at a at, at a conference once, and a person in the audience said, "So, Stan, when you look at people, what do you, do, you, do you see? Like flaming torches, or you know, how do you see the world?" He goes, "Well, you know, when I'm not taking a psychedelic, I see it like everybody else does." You know, so I, I think people had thought that you know, if you go into altered states far enough, you the way you perceive the world would be completely transformed. You know, I, I think perhaps, I mean, I think there is some of a, a change in that maybe, you know, for people, it becomes maybe more fluid, and especially the way you, your internal way of processing the world, you know, maybe take things a little easier, you, you drop away some of the uh, tension and the ego gripping on and, and needing to be right and all these things. So I think there's some I think there's things that are brought back from non-ordinary states into our every psych, everyday state. Um, but I, th- I think it's more, you know, this is why I find Whitehead so fascinating because the question is, you know, you have a mystery, especially with things like ayahuasca where people encounter these entities, you know, like plant entities that speak to them and tell them, you know, some some mission they should be on or or they encounter these, uh, you know, animal gods. 
or uh, you know, are those you know are those real? You know, what would real mean in this case? And I think for even with Whitehead, that becomes hard to parse out. And I, I've never had those experiences, so I, I think that's some of the ultimately challenging parts. But um, uh, I, I think you know some of the, you know, I, I mentioned my uh, um, what one of my experiences where I, I in my psychedelic state I saw the that that somehow a sine wave was the essence of the universe, mm -hmm. you know, which at the time it was it's felt very you know things and psychedelic states tend to have a feeling like this is the most important thing you've ever thought in your life, you know, and and I wrote it all down and lost it, but, you know, so like <laughs> many years later I was thinking about it and thought, well, that's exactly in a way what you know what, what Whitehead is talking about these momentary uh, you know flux of uh, occasions. And so I, I think in these states, you can really tap into, say, metaphysical insights that have a real have some real uh, philosophical validity. And uh, people seem to have these experiences at times of like w witnessing the Big Bang and uh, and going through the history of the universe. Now, I'm just reading a book called the uh, it's this thing, the Electric Universe, which uh, which I hadn't. A, a friend's a friend's father sent me this. These some other books on this, and it's the idea, the idea that you know the plasma, electromagnetic mm -hmm. plasma, makes up ninety nine percent of the universe, and that's really what's making things work versus gravity, and and that you know there wasn't a big bang. We're in a you know infinitely extending uh, time wise universe. So it, I started thinking, well, what about these people that have had experiences of the big bang? What does that tell us? You know. Where they were, you know, projecting uh, what you know the theories they had in their mind, and having a vivid, a vivid uh, experience of what they've read, but you know maybe it isn't accessing the past. So I, I guess I'm not going to be able to help you out much, really. <laughs> it's, it's. I, I think Whitehead's helpful for sorting out a lot of things, and there's still, you know, so so many questions, you know, that that's left unanswered, you know, especially around the kinds of. And to, to, you know, some people experience uh, aliens, you know, they, they have alien mm -hmm. encounters, as it were. And, you know, people are in normal states of consciousness have these alien encounters. And, and you know, what, what do we make of these? Um, there's a man in our holotropic breathwork training group who is regularly visited by this being from some other planet and who is you know, telling him all these things. And, and I said, well, you know, so I, was trying to, I was trying to sort out, you know, is this real or not? And, you know, and, and Stan has a thing where he talks about psychoid states where it's, so it's not, you know, it's real, but it's not real. It's psychological, you know, and I said, yeah, but that doesn't really answer it. And, and uh, do, do you know Rick Doblin? He started MAPS, uh, the, psych the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which has been behind a lot of the psych, has gotten funding and pushed through the psychedelic research. Anyway, he was at college with me and then he was in this training group and, uh, and so he said, well, if you got on a spaceship and flew to the planet this this being says they're from, would they know that? Would they know that guy? You know, and so, you know that's I have tend to also have kind of literal mind. You know, I, I want something solid also, not just, oh, it's real, but it's not real. That that doesn't help me out a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you you were able to. Um, to bring that forward in into, you know, the. Uh, like two thirds of the book that I've 
read thus far where you know they're where you're using uh whitehead's ideas to explain not necessarily the context nor the content of the experiences but rather the experience itself the shape of the, the yeah the the shape of it how how it kind of intrudes into your awareness and where that could all be coming from either from like some top down or or bottom up thing uh just maybe not necessarily like giving it all um uh, 100% like clarity but rather like i think getting us closer or yeah getting us closer to where these different experiences are actually existent or uh how they actually manifest uh in you know as as an experience um and it's all kind of like really hard to say um but like where do they fit in yeah in in what we consider to be you know the the fabric of our everyday experience it's because because for for many it's like this is the way the world is this is the way normal experience is and then there's this anomalous thing that enters that doesn't seem like the ordinary experience right it's non-ordinary and it could be like you described the 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 different kind of um i think it was three main i think you focused on three main types of like psychedelic like non-ordinary non-ordinary perception um like one being this vividness right where seeing something that you would ordinarily look at ordinarily look at and have a, a certain reaction to it's all of a sudden the same thing but more vivid and there's there's more life to it and and um yeah so well c- c- carry on yeah um so i w- i was just wanting to to s- to say that you know like i i appreciated what you were trying to do because it was it was questions that i myself have had um like i tried acid once didn't do anything for me at all um but just with my you know experience with like alcohol and you know spinning around on the merry-go-round like all these kinds of things it's like we they left an impression in my mind because when i was you know tried to understand where it all fit in it's like not really having any kind of context to it and your your ability to take the the psychedelic experiences as well as uh trans psychology or the psychology of non-ordinary states and and give them the the philosophical underpinning and framework to treat them as real which is like I think the biggest thing for me was just the fact that it's like not just um, you know the way that you would hear say uh, an atheistic materialist say or dismiss all sorts of uh, psychedelic experiences merely being like functions of brain chemistry like it's like that there's that there's no real reality to the experience itself regardless of the fact that this is an experience that you're having so there is some reality to it it's just a matter of like being able to understand it so i think that um it was really fascinating to read how whitehead can fit in or um provide support for those non-ordinary states 
And I don't know if you got into this, but maybe we could go there and say like, like how did, how did Whitehead come into this for you? Like where did, um, where did this exposure come from that led you to think that, you know, this, this sine wave of reality could be related to, um, Whitehead and that it would be helpful in some way. Like where did that come in? Let me answer that last, but first let me say thank you for bringing all of it up because that that's Whitehead's idea of our of what experience is and what how human perception works is is really key. You know, I'm not saying any of these experiences are necess, you know are, are necessarily metaphysic or how should I say it are objectively real, so to speak. But but the Whitehead's approach allows the possibility that we are in contact with things outside of ourselves, which really, I mean, since you, we, we don't know we, if we're really in contact with anything, you know, we're, we're, what does Santayana say? Uh, the solipsism of the present moment, you know, that's all we've really got with a, with a perception theory that science wields around, you know, that we're, and, and, you know, we, we don't know anything. So we, we can't, there's no cause in any case, Whitehead offers an, an uh, alternative to all of this, where the past events are flowing directly into new events, like they do in the quantum world, or at, at our level, at, you know, the way memories enter into our experience, you know, they just suddenly kind of flow in, or the way our bodily sensations somehow, you can feel, you know, you feel your stomach's upset, but it's also in your in in your experience, you know, it's in your experience, sort of in your head, and vision, you know, you can sort of feel in your eyes, it's flowing in. You know, so Whitehead expands that, that the world, the universe broadly and subtly is flowing into all of our, into every moment of experience. And thus, if there are other entities or other dimensions or other things happening, it is possible for these things to come into our experience, you know, including if there's a God, then, you know, God could enter into our experience. Um, actually, Whitehead probably would say that that is the case. Uh, for him, though, it was a, it was a uh, sort of a philosophical matter that he felt the universe has this deep order to it, and if there's this kind of deep order and progressive complexity, um, there needs to be something providing the the framework for that order. So he thought there had to be something pushing us, you know, towards greater order and complexity, and and that something would be something like what we traditionally think of as God. <clears throat> uh, I got into Whitehead. I'd gone to New College and studied psychology and philosophy and whatever's looked interesting. And then I went up to the University of Wisconsin of Green Bay and took more traditional psychology and actually got into some real philosophy courses, you know, Kant. And, and I thought phenomenology was very exciting because it was about experience and, you know, direct, you know, direct sort of human human science, um, and then went to West Georgia College, which had a humanistic psychology program and continued in all these things. But I, I felt like, I felt like they, there was something that wasn't a large enough context or framework, some way to connect our ne neuroscience, the neurological functioning with uh, our every, everyday perceptions and, and also you know, mystical, not ordinary states you know, something that could connect all of those together. And then when I started at Emory, after the first term at Emory University, working on this uh, 
interdisciplinary PhD program that they had that was terrific. Uh, my advisor said, uh, Will Beardsley is leaving at the end of the semester. Maybe you should study Whitehead with directed study in Whitehead. And I did something on process philosophy and process theology. And that was all I did that term. And after about six or eight weeks, I finally got an idea of what Whitehead was getting at. I thought, now that's this is what I've been looking for. And I haven't found uh, anything better yet. Was, was there something that particularly uh, fascinated you? Like uh, when you stumbled upon Whitehead, like for the first time, was there, um, I don't like for, for me, uh, what I really find fascinating is this, like that he kind of gets you out of this dualistic uh modernist thought world right uh, so um it forces you to to see the unity and and to think it all together kind of thing but w was there something that you were like oh my god um that's just brilliant well i think the thing that took me the longest to get my mind around was you know the actual occasions also you know these moments of experience aren't just the aren't just the brain you know it's it that we there's a human level Moments, occasions of bursts of feeling that are interacting with the neural activity. So this gives a whole mind, you know, it opens up a key to the, you know, the insoluble mind, you know, body problem that there's this rapid interaction, the flow of feeling back and forth. So there's downward causation. And, and it gave, it just gave a whole, you know, once you have that, then you can, and if, you know, the neural cells are metaphysically the same as our own moments of experience. And if the whole whole world is, you know, essentially of these vibrate, sort of vibrating, feeling, energetic uh, things, it's it's really quite a vivid, exciting picture of, of, the, of the universe. And I, I, I love the uh, idea of the one, his, you know, ultimate metaphysical principle of the, the many become one and are increased by one. Because you know the, the the perennial problem of the many and the how, how are there many and how is there the one, and in a lot of the approaches you end up with some kind of you know perennial philosophy where we're really all one. There's only one, but somehow we're parts of that one. And William James used to go nuts over all that. His his last book he has a uh, several chapters against Hegel and against the absolute of you know if the absolute is everything you know then our experience is value you know then we're nothing. And and Whitehead's approach of that same as with the brain, our mo our moments of experience could be interaction with God's experience. So our experience is real, and then is felt by God. Then we feel God's experience. So it 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 create it, it gives a you know sort of overcomes some of the tendencies in spirituality and the transpersonal. Say, well, so this is an illusion. You know, this isn't real because only God is real. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I All I really know is this, you know, and, and some wild experiences. So that isn't very satisfying for me either. And makes me feel like I'm, God, I'm really unenlightened. You know, I haven't, I didn't realize that God is everything, you know. I mean, I, you know, anyway, those are some of the things that excited me. Mm -hmm. Well, could you get into some of the, some of the, the, the kind of direct applications of process philosophy to different like uh, non-ordinary states like so how did you how did you put those two together to make sense of your own experiences and just the like the entire literature on you know on, on these types of things 
Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, <That's>... we, <laughs> well, yeah, where to, where to start? Well, how about we start with that example that, that I gave about the, the increased vividness. So an experience where it's, it's like all of a sudden what was, what was there that, that same, that same object, like, let's say is now, now seems to be sending you like a thousand times the, the information or the, the vibrancy that it was before. So how, how would how would you place that within uh, a process philosophy framework? Um, yeah, I did a lot of uh, study of depth psychology, so I tend to think in in that framework. Mm -hmm. So what I read, read Whitehead, and he has this notion of there's um, uh, what he calls the concrescence are these moments of experience or events of ex experiential events where the past flows in. And first of all, these this you is a vague feeling, a grasping of these past past events. So you'd you'd have you know the the chair there, but you'd be feeling more generally the uh, molecular and uh, atomic occasions have you know they're vibrating in some color frequency pattern, and that's sort of flowing in. And and normally, what our what our experience does is condense and what, what he calls uh, transmute. So it takes a, all, these, all these individual feelings and pulls them together into something that we can comprehend more easily. So, you know, we see, a, a, I, I'm looking at a white chair rather than all of this vibrant, you know, vibrating, you know, color and energy, because it's more practical to see it, you know, especially to see like a bear coming at you than all this, you know, vibrating brown color and energy, you know, <laughs> for, for survival. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> far, far out. Yeah. You know, bears seem to be very popular now. There's all these bear stories on the internet. So I'm thinking about it. And, and so, you know, we've developed a way of what, what he calls perception in the mode of uh, presentational immediacy. You know, so we we see things that are practical and, and getting our way around in the world. And it's, you know, very helpful. But it also screens out, you know, the, uh, the much wider things that's, that's entering in. And I, I think that non-ordinary states open open up the channels, as it were. And, you know, the, Huxley talks about that and Bergson talked about that. So opening up and, you know, I, I picture, you know, you've got kind of this... Uh, triangle triangle and stuff's flowing in and there's you know you develop these habitual patterns of how these things are put together and you know and some of them are repressed you know some of them are based on you know i had a bad experience with a bear so i'm not going to feel any you know feel if bear if i see a bear and feel i'm not going to feel that so you end up not feeling a lot from you know your youth experiences so there's a combination there's this just this natural way of seeing the world in a way that's practical, and then it's overlayered by all the things that we have shut down. All the you know, so you know that's why I think that's why recovering sort of the feeling in the body and feelings of memory are so important because it opens up these channels, and you can perceive other things more fully and deeply, and connect to them. You know, I, I think you know, I think one thing you know, intuition. You know, people think, well, intuition is you, you know you're reading somebody's face or you remember you know. With this, with, it, with Whitehead's ideas, you are directly feeling another person's experience. So intuition is a is a direct experience, not a derived experience, as it were. And you know, Rupert Sheldrake talks about you know 
Do you know Rupert Sheldrake? His mm -hmm. work on, uh, yep. you, know, you know, more recently he's done these books on, uh, you know, the, how dogs know their owners are coming home. Mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. Whether or not it's the same time, whether it's five miles away, they know that the owner's coming. And, or that people know when, sense when people are looking at them behind them. They get, you know, you get this tingling. And you know these are these are things that would happen in a Whiteheadian universe, along with parapsychology. Yeah, I find it very interesting that uh, he uses this word prehension, right? And uh, you, uh, in your book, you kind of um, translate it as feeling, um, which I thought also was interest an interesting take, uh, where you talk about feeling. Um, but uh, I think uh, from what you just said, uh, what I like about the word prehension is it it kind of has a uh, this ring at least um since i'm i'm a german so maybe i have a kind of different uh, connotation to that term but uh, to me it kind of sounds like a sort of a unity between like the intellect and uh, uh, emotions and bodily sensations and feelings and all of that it's it's kind of like a, a a wholesome wholesome grasp um that kind of unifies um all of these things right so it's it's not necessarily just emotion or just intellect or just uh, bodily sensations but it's it's sort of everything and that's how you you know grasp these 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 things and maybe even the these um parapsychological phen phenomena right uh, am i uh, onto something there um do you agree i i i like that i like that a lot um i i wish i could claim that i i'd come up with the feeling thing but what whitehead talks about these as feelings also and said so, you know describes apprehension as feeling the feelings of others. So, you and, and you know, Whitehead plays around a lot with words. He was mm -hmm. very sophisticated about language. You know, we, you didn't have to have like language theorists explain to him that, you know, about, uh, you know, he has a, um, you know, prehension. You know, he, he took the word prehensile, you know, which is monkeys have prehensile tails. So you're right, they grab, they can grab things. So, you know, you're grabbing the past, you're feeling the past. It's just trying to suggest ways of what, you know, of, of a new thinking about things. And he, he talks about how if you have a new idea, if you use an old term for that idea, then people don't know you mean something new. But if you invent a completely new term, then people think you're being obscure, you know. <laughs> so you've got to find, you know, something like prehensive, which is a, you know, is a word, but, you're, you you know, it's not people are not so familiar with it that they immediately think they know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I can't um, remember. But, if... but, 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 oh, no, uh, but you're right. I mean, this is that is the prehensions are bringing everything in, in to create a whole. And then there's multiple, you know, Whitehead describes multiple levels of prehension within the concrescent process that are leading towards this intensified feeling and uh nar narrowed intensified feeling mm. have you have you and seen have you seen jude jones book called intensity no i, I read that recently and it's really i mean it's it's technical you, you you'd want to be familiar with whitehead before taking it on but if, if you are it's she thinks intensity should be the basic term in whitehead's in whitehead's yeah. way of understanding a system because you know, he says that, you know, that God aims at intensity of experience. That's what the universe is about. And I, when I was thinking about that recently, I thought, well, you know, psychedelics are like the premier 
intensifier of experience. So, so in a way, psychedelics could be the uh, the new sacrament, you know. <laughs> I mean, not just reaching God, but just in general, you know, bringing people alive and intensifying the, their lives. Or just really hard gym workouts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that's another way of altering. You know, people do these. I can't run. I can't. I spent a year trying to run. I, I, I was barely doing a mile. Yes. <laughs> but other people, I guess they go out there and they get high. You know, they they have, you know, they have, they have not ordinary experiences of running with the. Uh... <laughs> well, John, you, you mentioned the the different like phases or levels of prehension because there's a, bun a bunch of different stuff going on in, in different orders, according to Whitehead's scheme and different things are coming in and coming out. And so in the book, you kind of tie in, this kind of goes back to, to the question I, I had about tying these things together. You kind of, um, speculate or, you know, or conclude or argue that different non-ordinary, non-ordinary states are kind of like putting the flashlight on or putting the awareness on different aspects of that or, or different different levels of that prehension, different stages of the, of those prehensions that are kind of ordinarily, like you said, blocked from consciousness. Like we don't, we don't see certain things because they're not practical, but when you kind of like remove that presentational immediacy layer, you might kind of, in a sense, revert back to the more primitive, um, prehension that you're getting from the thing in itself. Right. So that, so, so instead of seeing that chair, you might actually start seeing those vibrating fields of intense, you know, energy and feeling. And it's because you're kind of stripping down, stri stripping back the layers of, of, of selection and simplification of the, the data that are, you know, coming to you and getting to a more kind of, you know, explosive and, like and intense experience itself or experiences itself. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> What, what do you well, think? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I appreciate you. I <laughs> after working on this for so long, when I finished the book, I thought, God, I don't want to think about this anymore for yeah. a while. <laughs> so, so I'm not as on top of it as I could be. Um, but you know, one of the things I think is is very helpful. Uh, you know, there's a, a a debate about how much of our perception, or is all of our perception, just culturally conditioned, or are we actually, you know. Is there some authentic part coming, you know, of reality coming into our experience? And I think Whitehead's notion that, you know, the, um, you know, the past. I mean, the past is it's really a uh, what's it called? A uh, correspondence theory of truth. You know, our, what what's corresponding is our experience. How well closely it corresponds to the events that in the past that we're feeling. So you know, when you take away, you know, strip away some of these habitual patterns of understanding and perceiving more of the authentic feelings from the from these events as you say can come in and we can have a more direct mm -hmm. perception but you know it's always our experience bringing it is always coming into our experience mm -hmm. and we, and i would think we, we're always to some degree or other you know coloring it with uh with our past right with the way we've come to understand things you know that right. and well, um, the no, finish your thought. Or? I was just going to say, for an example, that the big trip chapter seven, where I talk about the part, a very powerful experience, you know, I, listening to side two of Abbey Road, 
I, you know, I go through this thing. I'm, I'm, you know, climbing up this a vision of this climbing up this mountain, and you know, these gods are you know, waiting at the top, and it's sort of this kind of a semi, you know, religious, um, mythological vision. And at the same time, I'm going through this, experiencing all the things I did wrong to people, sort of a purgatory thing. Uh, you know, all of that I, I would see as me using symbolism to. You know, somewhat personal mm -hmm. symbolism from my life to create, you know, although archetypal also, and so you know, some combination of these things flowing in. But at the end, when I'm sort of encountering this powerful light behind being obscured, you know, that felt more to me like there was something that was, you know, really, really there that was coming into my experience. It wasn't, mm -hmm. it what wasn't filtered. You know, it wasn't something from my you know, because that was the last thing I expected. <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I think you know you can see that there's also always some cultural conditioning, but Whitehead's ideas allow for us to also you know, and just our everyday life. You know, the world is real. You know, uh, which is mm -hmm. which is nice to know. Well, the mm, couple things on that. Where to start? Well, that idea. Maybe I'll just start with that last thing that that you said. Um, that gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation here is that kind of real, but not real. It's kind of annoying. It's like, well, is it real or is it not real? It's um, there's this kind of um, well, the way I kind of see it is that there might be something like uh, an experience of something that's totally outside of your habitual, um, you know, habitual experience for your entire life. Well, if you, if you encounter something that is so far out of that, um, that normal mode of experience. Well, what's going to happen? So you have no no memory on which to <clears throat> to extrapolate or elaborate what's going on. You've only got <clears throat> your your existing experiences. And so, if this thing is not a physical object right in front of you that you can say, "Oh, I've never seen that particular shade of of fuchsia before," or whatever, you know, you, there's still a frame of reference by how close it is to the other things that you've experienced. If it's something that's from this other realm, this other world, or this, like this non-physical, um, you know, part of reality. Well, what's your, what's your conscious mind's reaction going to, to it going to be? Well, it, it kind of makes sense to me that it would clothe it in something at least, you know, a step away within your experience that would, uh, that would make sense for it. And you might even, it might even be a conscious decision on an unconscious level, right? Where the, your, yeah. your mind is like, okay, well, well, how are we going to get this across to ourselves? Well, this is this is the perfect way to frame it. This is the perfect way to to show it because that's that's what we or I, you know, or little you know, little John or little Harrison down there. That's what they're going to. That's what will be um, acceptable to their mind at that time. You know, maybe push it a bit for a, a bit further, but but um, you know, maybe maybe the experiences just would be totally incomprehensible without that clothing. Um, that we put on it. I think that's a big reason that people say experiences are ineffable, you know, because mm -hmm. they're just so, so different that you, you don't have, have any way of your normal frameworks or language is hard to apply. I was thinking of this, one of the end scenes of C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra. Actually, it's, that's the similar, the imagery from when we going up the mountain and, you know, these gods at the top. And these the gods from these various planets have gathered to welcome Earth into the society. And and first they appear 
at one point they appear as these giant wheels kind of combining together and C.S. Lewis, you know, the protagonist is, you know, completely overwhelmed and discombobulated by this. And they keep changing shape into something that, that he can, you know, that he can understand and is acceptable to him. Mm-hmm. So I, I, th- I think, you know, C.S. Lewis, have you, yeah. have, have you read the space trilogy by C.S. Lewis? Out of the Silent no, Planet, Garalandra. I've, I've had it on my list. Yeah, it's um, Paralandra in particular is is is. I wrote a short paper on it about, you know, Stanislaw Grof has these perinatal matrices where you think when he did psychedelic uh, therapy with people, they often relive relive their birth and he, he, like Otto Rank he, and for and Freud initially he thought the birth trauma was birth experience was kind of a template for uh, you know for the unconscious mind and mm-hmm. and and it has these uh different phases there's the intrauterine kind of oceanic bliss and then there's the no they thought sart was caught in the second phase which is the no exit phase you know the contractions start but the cervix is closed so you, you know you can't can't get out and you can't get suffocated and then there's going through the you know the the hero's journey through the through the birth canal and then opening up into this, you know, glorious entry into the world. And oh, the and Paralandra is, is like a perfect exemplification. It starts out with this guy in a in a white coffin. The protagonist is, is ship sent off of Earth and he lands in the ocean it, it, and Venus. In this golden, flowing ocean, you know, it's like the sperms uh, coming in to impregnate the ovum, and you know, it unfolds exactly like this perinatal matrices. It's quite remarkable. I can't remember if I asked you this when we last spoke, John, but are you familiar with James C. Carpenter, his work? He wrote. Yeah, he's a yeah, yeah, he's a, a psychologist and parapsychologist um, who wrote a book uh, called First Sight. We, we talked about that, didn't we? Yeah, did I was, we? I was okay, yeah. My notes from back then. That's why the only reason I yeah. can remember. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I thought we might because, um, well, I was just, um, you know, along with, I guess, just coincidentally, <laughs> along with reading your book, I was revisiting just a, a few pages in uh, in Carpenter's book for something that I was writing, you know, completely unrelated, and. And so I was again seeing the, the kind of um, the, well the overlap because, like Carpenter, to t- to recap for people who haven't listened to our previous conversation here, where we probably said the exact same thing, Carpenter um, came to some very like he came to a theory of psi, which is basically a theory of of consciousness because um, uh, and, and experience um, through his through basically his theorizing just based on psychological and uh, parapsychological research. And the picture that he came up with was remarkably similar to, um, to Whitehead's philosophy, Mm -hmm. even though while he was developing it, Carpenter wasn't even aware of, of Whitehead. And then during the process, someone said, Oh, or I think I can't remember if someone showed it to him or if he saw someone else using the word prehension and he's like, Oh, that's the perfect word. And, uh, so he, he uses the word in his book, even though he hadn't read, you know, he hadn't read any, any um any whitehead but the there are some just some very interesting similarities because he's talking about parapsychology and you're talking about transpersonal psychology and and kind of and uh um psychedelic experiences he's talking about you know 
lab experiences and and everyday life experiences of telepathy and PK psychokinesis and basically putting them again putting all of that in the same picture so that just like in this transpersonal world and it, like like you said if there is if there is god maybe we can directly experience god and maybe like whitehead might say god is a constant presence in at some level of our experience or or prehension and we just aren't always aware of it like that's one of those things that kind of get blocks off blocked off from our conscious awareness in every, any given moment but it's always there under the surface so that's another another um non-ordinary state would be to remove all of the other levels of experience and just feel that 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 presence from the the you know the ultimate the and the 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 initial aim that's coming towards us and that 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 push forward and that and you know the source of the source of our uh, of our own consciousness our own being but um well anyways <laughs> you probably had a question i was getting to but just go on <laughs> He, he, remind, he reminded me that yes, the uh, his idea of the sigh as this baseline unconscious activity that's feeling yeah. other feeling the world is right. almost identical to what his notion of how we're prehending. Um, yeah, I, I think when we talked about, it, I said I, I'd want to specialize the term sigh for other aspects. Uh, yeah, of, of, in Whitehead's yeah. picture, but yeah, it's, it, that's all. That's it's really close. Um, and with the. Uh, I think I go into some some slight detail in my book about how, yes, we are, you know, God is entering into our experience. And Stan Groff's yes, ultimate, you know, psych transpersonal experiences are of the demiurge, which is sort of the creative God, the uh, the universal mind, you know, which is the, the mind of the universe and the uh, metacosmic or supercosmic void, which is kind of this mysterious experience of pure potential where everything's there but you know nothing's happening and and these fit i think extremely well with whitehead's notion of what is he has just a short chapter at the end of process and reality that he kind of throws in i, I think because he couldn't resist about what what god might be like mm -hmm. and he's got his he's got these two two aspects the uh consequent nature of god which is god's ongoing conscious integration and preservation of all that happened and and then the primordial nature which is this pool of all possibility that's you know that that we can draw on but it, but it's also a graded graded envisionment so there's certain things that god in this universe would like to see occurring probably like conscious intense experience so that's things mm -hmm. are kind of kind of juggled around in a way to kind of foster that kind of thing and uh mm -hmm. and you know so the supercosmic void when groff describes it as this this pure potential of, of creativity but it isn't real you know the, these things are very very close to what whitehead was uh mm -hmm. was describing so you know i find the two the two of them you know, you know they're both very speculative and very exotic as it were but they both seem to come to very similar points like like uh uh Groff's idea of memory without a material substrate, as he puts it, that people seem to have experiences in that early state of things that couldn't have been accessed, you know, from the brain. And, mm -hmm. you, and you know, what the whole idea of prehension or psi is exactly that. It's, it's accessing things directly, you know, not 
only, you know, I, I have a feeling like the brain, the brain play, plays, a, you know, seems like it, when I try to remember somebody's name and I'm going through the alphabet to find the right letter to, to you know, to stimulate what it might be. I have a feeling, I, I have a feeling there's neural activity happening. I'm, you know, getting some part of the brain with this little cue thing out. So I, you know, it's, it's more complex than that we're just, you know, accessing the past, but it's, but it's. I think that's a that's a hugely important element. I think in in memory and perception in general. Mm -hmm. What was your question, though? Oh, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't wait. Think... Also, I uh, say something in the end of uh, in this chapter about God that you know I, something about like experience that is worth uh, preserving, um, so that uh, in a sense um, that might tie in with the intensity idea right um that uh, um actually like uh, some of the things they uh that are that are really worth preserving god kind of preserves right something that like that i think god preserves everything which is kind of a debate does you know does god preserve hitler's you know concentrations camps you know and um yeah you know, stan groff has a funny line i don't know where he got it from that you know but about why you know why there's evil in the world and why there's you know all these things and i think i think some indian guru responded well because it thickens the plot <laughs> you know, it makes it more complex you know then then there's people heroes and you know creates the whole, a whole mm -hmm. melodrama as it were for god yeah. I, I don't quite raises the stakes along with that uh, i think the idea from whitehead is that if you if you have a universe where the creativity uh, is spread out among the creatures and, and God, and you're trying to build complex, complex entities that have their own creativity. Shit's going to happen, you know. It's, mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah. Well, here let me let me read um, a quote that you have in in the book from John Cobb um, on on evil. Um, I think this is a good one. Let me just. Uh, just check if there was something before it. No. Okay. I recommend so if John God's writings a lot. He's able yeah. to express these ideas very, very clearly. So here's here he is. This is from uh, God in the World. He wrote, If God is understood as that factor in the universe which makes for novelty, life, intensity of feeling, consciousness, freedom, and in man for genuine concern for others and which provides that measure of order which supports these, we must recognize that he is also responsible in a significant way for the evil in the world. If there were nothing at all, or total chaos, or if there were only some very simple structure of order, there would be little evil. There would instead be the absence of both good and evil. Earthquakes or tornadoes would be neither good nor evil in a world devoid of life. Only where there are significant values does the possibility of their thwarting, their conflict, and their destruction arise. The possibility of pain is the price paid for consciousness and the capacity for intense feeling. Sin exists as the corruption of the capacity for love. Thus God, by creating good, provides the context within which there is evil. I thought that was a really good paragraph. Yeah, he... <clears throat> yes, Charles Hartshorn, is, who was John Cobb's teacher at Chicago, 
has a, I, I wish I was one of those people that could remember quote, <laughs> important quotations, yeah. but I'm not. Yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> but he says something, uh, it's a similar effect that, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to have freedom and novelty and choice, then, uh, you know, it, it, life is life is absurd to the extent that th- these things happen. But, it, you know, it, it's not absurd because you wouldn't you wouldn't have all these possibilities. You know, I mean, you wouldn't have evil if they're saying with good. So he he has a very nice refutation, I, th- I think, of the existentialist uh, that life is absurd. Yeah, um, and, and I think. Um... You know the, the classical problem of evil that uh, God is all powerful, all good, and and uh, and so on. Um, I think someone, I think it was David Stove, uh, who said, you know, about that something along the lines of like, if your premises just con- con- consistently like produce uh, nonsense, you know, maybe it's time to uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, reconsider your premises, right? And and uh, as far as I understand, in the White Hadian uh, universe, I mean, God is not, is not all powerful, right? So, so I mean, the, if you go about it in this kind of intellectual, um, logical puzzle kind of way, so the soul, you know, that's it. You know, I mean, it still uh, doesn't answer like our, uh, you know, intuition about like how, you know, that just the suffering, you know, that that comes from evil and and all of that. But, but at least you know that this logical puzzle. Um, it doesn't make that isn't that much or isn't that important anymore if you if you have a white hidden perspective that yeah i mean god is you know not all powerful it's not this like um a human on steroids uh, <laughs> kind of, uh thing you know that's sitting in the clouds and and can just you know like uh, uh reach down and, and and throw guns you know like out of killers hands or something yes yeah that Thanks for bringing that up. That's um, David Ray Griffin has several books on theodicy, which I didn't know what that means. I think it's, but it's theory of why is there evil, and and he that's exactly the route he goes. That for him, God is all good, God is all knowing. Although God doesn't know the future because there's creativity and the future isn't settled. Uh, but yes, God is only is the most powerful that a God, entity could be, but does not control. It is you know operates through persuasion. There, there's several people, my colleagues, that have a little bit of debate going on whether God is all good also. <laughs> so they're, they're fighting that out a little bit. But um, oh, what was, oh, one of the things I like that David says that a lot of a lot of religious people would rather have God be all-powerful and responsible for evil than, than think of God as not all-powerful. Yeah, it's very true, yeah. Yeah, it's it's sort of a projection almost, right? That you, we project these um, these idea, these very human ideas about good, uh, good and evil, and what is power and and that sort of thing, and um, onto like a, a god that we it's just uh, as I said, like a human on on steroids. But um, it's all always struck me um, a little strange this idea. I mean, what does all powerful even mean? You know, or all good? It's um, I mean, we know that, you know, like five years ago, I had different ideas about like what good is, you know, what's good and evil is, and it will probably change again and be refined. And how how could we even know, you know, what 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 God would think of all good or uh, even, um, yeah, what, what all powerful would be? Is it, a, is it a persuasion thing? Is it like, uh, 
total control, like micromanagement, all of these things. And I, I think the the some of those classical theological um, questions that, as you said, is 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 sort of a uh, it, it's sort of a limited understanding, and people are so married to them, right? It's it's kind of strange. You reminded me that uh, David Griffin also says that uh, a god that was that was all powerful and controlling everything wouldn't really be the, all that powerful because you know you just got puppets. You know that really isn't you know if you're running everything that isn't <laughs> much of an exertion of to be trying to persuade other entities who have their own creativity and and direct them into you know particular channels. You know that's you know a real project. You know that that's yeah. a, a real effort. You know. And especially if if one of the means by which such a god may have to do that is through other beings, mm. right? Is is because um, kind of the, one of the ways I've been thinking about omnipotence is to kind of like like with Luke. Well, maybe we like maybe we can just kind of redefine it because if God is in some sense the container of everything, you know, we are all within God and God with, is within us in kind of a panentheistic statement. Mm. Then, um, or where did I start there? Um, oh no, the train of thought got derailed. Something um, power, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Okay. So power. Yeah. So if, if, if in some sense we are all part of that whole, then, then you can say, okay, the whole has all power. All power is contained within that whole. Like all, because there can't be any power outside of it because it is all that exists. And so everything within that is an expression of that power. And, and it is, so it's like the, the power of any individual, the power of any one that is built out of those many, or, and is built on top of those out of, and on top of those many, you know, the many plus one, each one is, gets that power from that all powerful source. It is an expression of all that power. And in a sense, even like a, like a, like a holograph, you know, or a hologram, of that power. It's like all that power is contained in some sense or, or some portion of it in that one little, one little being. And so technically your power that you are using to, you know, make all your choices is an expression of all that power. Like God does hold all of the power, but you're actually the one that's wielding it in the, in this reality. And so, <clears throat> so in a sense, God is almost like the, the parts that are within God are kind of at war with themselves. And, and, uh, so if you give, if you give a bit of your own free of your own freedom to two parts of yourself that then go to war with each other, you know, there are two expressions of your, of your will, but one just isn't listening as hard as that, you know, as the other might be, but I, I don't know. I haven't fully developed that, but. I think I, a lot of that's a really close description of what Whitehead means by creativity, you know, his powers, this creative, that's it. That's the ultimate metaphysical principle of everything, is is creativity, and he does say that God is the ab aboriginal instance of creativity. But creativity is, you know, the creativity is not a thing in itself. It's something that's characterized in every event. But it's every event, you know, that's how the many, you know, that's the integrative activity, is the creativity. So I, I think. I don't think Whitehead would think of God as giving the creativity to the particular entities, but God's creativity would be flowing into every entity in the initial aim. So, I mean, it's a very, it's, it's a, uh, 
you know, you could say that and be very, and in one way, be very, be right. But mm-hmm. but having studied with David Griffin, who was a, you know, also was did the, uh, he and uh, uh, Sherburn did the corrected and annotated uh, re- re- reboot of Process and Reality, which was this in enormous project of you know going through it because Whitehead never revised his stuff he just kept writing and it, you know when he changed his mind about something in process and reality he just hey you know what now I'm thinking of it this way you know and didn't bother changing the, the conceptual reversion at all so anyway that's my long way of saying I, I'm parsing something that doesn't need to be doesn't need to be done so I, I, I like what you said and, and perhaps this will be a re- the revision for Whitehead that that people will will like, you know, what Whitehead, you know, one thing about him was he didn't think he had the, had the perfect system by any means. You know, speculative philosophy is the ongoing endeavor to find a framework of ideas, general framework of ideas. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's ever, ever changing and ever hopefully progressing into in better understanding. So. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the, I think one of the things that kind of contributed to, to that way that I've been trying to think about this is, one idea that I like from um, uh, Bernardo Castrup. Have you heard of Castrup? He's a he was he's a computer scientist or a computer engineer who got you know in his um, late in his career. Well, he's still a pretty young guy, but um, you know after his his computer career, got into philosophy and got a PhD. And so he's been he's been trying to reinvent reinvigorate idealism you know, a certain type of idealism. And of course, you know, I, I've got my own problems with that and, and the way he, he kind of goes about it. But one of the ideas that I really liked from him that I thought was kind of just, just really cool because I'd never heard it expressed this way was that um, the way he sees it, there's this, you know, I, I guess, well, he probably wouldn't put it like this, but this is the way I've kind of translated it, that the reality is you know, mind, consciousness, that's kind of the, the the basis of everything, right? As an idealist. And that all of the all of the individuals, all of the beings, all of the organisms, you might say that that Whitehead would talk about, all of the actual occasions, they're in fact um akin to dissociated personalities within that cause that cosmic mind. So it's like uh it, it's not a perfect um an- analogy because you know we ordinarily think of dissociated personalities as as a as a pathology of, you know, of normal human psychology. Um, so in, in a sense you could say, Oh, well, you know, God has MPD. Um, but, but that idea that, that consciousness does seem to have the ability to kind of like, um, how to put it almost like divide and encapsulate within one being. So even if you like Stephen Browdy is, is a philosopher who's looked at dissociation and, and, um, trying to look at, you know, what it means, how we can conceptualize it or think of it. But um, within this, you know, within each individual, which can be seen as a type of self, you know, a type of individual, there, there does seem to be this real, really, this real fluid quality to consciousness that under certain conditions that it, that like inner barriers can be formed between um, aspects of that constant consciousness within oneself. And that, um, and that the process of kind of psychological growth and healing in that case would be reintegrating those personalities so that there's nothing that's so that those very those very obviously disintegrated and dissociated aspects of personality are are reintegrated of course everyone has dissociated and you know repressed stuff like you talk about in transpersonal psychology 
but um, at least in this framework, um, I, I thought that was a really, a really, just a, a really interesting way. It would make a great science fiction story, I think, if the universe were presented as the, you know, we're all the, the dissociated multiple personalities of a, you know, of a, of a schizophrenic and, and MPD cosmic God. I think, I think. It would make a great t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> But in some yeah. sense, there there might be a truth to it that 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 there's this this process of division that happens in the the, the primal cosmic stuff. I don't know, but I I don't. My headphones went off. I hope that isn't going to affect oh. anything. I touched them. No, it sounds good. <laughs> um, I um, yeah, I, that, that's I, I like that. It's very colorful. Although one of the things I I push is. I, it feels wrong to me for everyone to talk about everything is consciousness. You know, I mean, yeah. I think they, I think they mean experience, but consciousness is so misleading because, you know, you know Whitehead's line that uh, you know consciousness is the occasional crown of experience. Because you know, I you know, I I don't. Although some people I think I think think this that you know the books are conscious and every everything's you know. But I like Whitehead's approach very much that things have some subtle synthetic activity that that resembles you know is resembles our experience and that there's a similarity and, and this helps with the idea of you know evolution of consciousness out of matter because matter in itself has this fundamental sentience but when it, it seems like it confuses the matter we call it consciousness yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and that might you know just, just one really quick. Um, I'm not sure if Castrop actually uses that word. That might have been me. He might just use the word mentality or mind. So, <laughs> so it might be that might be my bad and not Castrop's. But <laughs> okay. yeah, but maybe but it's I his. I can't remember. Yeah, but I think that's a general um, danger with with that sort of ideas. Even with Castrop, I think, and and uh, even more so if you talk about like the great consciousness or whatever, because there, there's kind of like the. Um, the implication there that it might all be an illusion, right? Because that's that invites that kind of thinking. Um, like it's all like what we perceive is kind of like um, in our consciousness, right? And and it's this sort of um, idea that uh, nothing is really real out there, right? And, and and that sort of thing. I think that's that's always the the kind of danger when you when you think about it too much in. Uh, like everything is mind or everything is conscious at least you know depending on what you mean exactly by that but i think that's that's sort of a, a danger and and i think what what i like about why that is uh um yeah that, that, that he kind of like uh uh forces you to to accept like all all of that the, the the world outside and 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 makes you think in a sort of more holistic kind of way um perhaps a bit like some of the ancient greeks actually who also not uh, had this kind of um thought that the higher world and the and the material world they they didn't like distinguish that too much they they at least like the before plato right and and the the some of the pre pre socratics and uh it's something maybe that we should recapture a bit you know to to not uh have this uh, this dividing line um between like the higher world and 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 the earthly world but the this sort of embeddedness and and interwovenness right that and i think that that comes out very powerfully in 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 whitehead system and, and it uh, we can probably debate you know if is there if there's is there any system that is actually true you know or is just any system just a way of looking at the world a certain perspective you know but even uh, if we say that, um, I think Whitehead's pr perspective is just very 
very appropriate or very powerful in that it forces you to to overcome that sort of um sort of uh thinking of chopping everything up into like higher and lower worlds and that kind of thing i i, th I found that very helpful for uh tr trying to not having the transpersonal realm and then this world that that's that there there's one universe what what, what does whitehead say something like you know there's there's all experience and there's the universe we experience and about and if and beyond that we must remain sort of like a friction shine we must remain mute because <laughs> if we can't experience it we'll never know it you know that that's whether it's even there or not um but i do i do think that yes having that's one of the great benefits of whitehead's philosophy is that everything you know the endeavor to account for all experience within within a, a speculative scheme and he has a you know the wonderful line i'm sure i quote where you know, we have to take experience sober, experience drunk, experience sleeping, experience awake, or dreaming, experience religious, experience skeptical. He goes on and on. You know, all of that is 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 potential evidence for understanding. And you know, that's where he's different, I think, from phenomenology. He wants to take the scientific evidence, you know, and, and incorporate that into the whole scheme. And if, if phenomenology has, has you know tough time with that, you know, it's not going to. I don't think there's any. Well, I, I don't know of any way to do that from that perspective. Let me may also mention that uh, you and the uh, viewers might enjoy, there's the Cobb Institute out in Claremont, and they have weekly uh, presentations by various process thinkers. And there's a process in faith, which has some interesting things on uh, on religion and, and, and uh, process thought. And, and once you get into the, if you go to the Center for Process Studies website, you know, they have a whole bunch of resources. Anyone who's interested in investigating this from someone who talks with people who talk about it better than I do. Say the say the name of that. So what, what should we Google if we want to get there? I think if you start with the Center for Process Studies, okay. and then we should have links to the Cobb Institute and to Process Process and Faith as part of the uh, Center for Process Studies. Okay, cool. All right. We'll we'll make sure to um, we'll 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 try our best to include links in the description below the video when we put this up. But uh, well, on the subject of of um, kind of moving into academic domains and and projects, um, what are your thoughts on the the recent um, what's their name the the guys that are there's a project to publish um, you know Whitehead's yeah, yeah. lecture notes and they're going to be issuing like. Uh, an edition of his letters and new editions of all his books, you know, probably over the next like 20 years to, it'll be the time by, by the time that it'll be, it'll probably be 20 years. I'm guessing before everything's out, but uh, they've got a few volumes out. What do you think about that project? I've, I've been in touch with, touch with them a little bit. And I think they're at Gonzaga university and they're doing a great job. It's fascinating to see these. Uh, I think they'll be doing, you know, new editions of all Whitehead's major books but they're also parsing through these. Uh, it's been a huge project because you know they thought, you know, Whitehead. The the thing uh, Victor Lowe had said, well, you know, when he died, he told his wife to burn all his papers and letters, and she did that. And it turns out that uh, we don't know if he really said that, but she didn't. So there've been these boxes of letters they found in one of his grandsons or grandnephews up in Canada had had this big resource, and they've. They found various in various places. They found notes from his classes, uh, students' notes, some of which are very helpful, some maybe not so much. 
but it's, it, you know, it, it gives a very different perspective on, on Whitehead as thinking in a classroom. And, and, and it's, he's, he's working out his metaphysics in the classroom with students. So it, it's interesting to see his um, sort of un, unfiltered ideational process and content. I think it's, it's, it's very exciting. I've got a couple of the books. I haven't read them yet, but I've got one of the collections yeah. of his books. No, I've read, I, I got I've the read first the, one. I read the I read the book by is it Joe Pitak, which is a summary of of his thoughts. He's one of the editors of the notes. Is uh, what he thinks the importance of of the notes are so far. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna have to read that because you know you've got to be a real fan to like go into students' yeah. notes about the you know <laughs> and. Uh, you know, yeah, I, but, I admire but, the project, but I, I wasn't able to get into it. Maybe I'll revisit it sometime. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, th I think that that book isn't very long, so that that's definitely readable. I, I forget what it's called, but it, you know, if you look up the people that are doing the Whitehead Project, Joe mm -hmm. begins with a P, and and then look his book up. It, it it's pretty good, pretty interesting. All right, no, I'll yeah. check that one out. But speaking of like uh, the overall like academic scene, um, we talked a little bit about that be before we started recording, right? And uh, I, I would be kind of interested uh, uh, in you know how you see like this this whole thing developing. I mean, when when I look like in the in the mainstream philosophy journals, let's say you know it's kind of like you still have all these you know battles going on with all these different positions and what have you and physicalism type a and b and and all that and uh, yeah these days you have a few panpsychists but even they are often like very defensive and just keep very close to the you know materialist uh, package so so to say and the, the white hedians were always like more renegades you know i mean david ray griffin um, went after Darwinism and and all that and and that sort of thing is like not really common in in academic philosophy at least in the analytic um, kind of uh, journals. Uh, so um, and I was just wondering, you know, if, whether you you observe the scene a little bit, you're into the the scene. Um, do you feel like there's there's more interest in 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 Whitehead and and his ideas and maybe also as they relate to um, parapsychology um or like uh, psychedelics and 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 all of that is there like an are there more people kind of like fed up with the you know analytic mainstream or the continental mainstream and 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 go that route um i heard also that in china apparently uh white white it is popular and and so how how do you see that all of that um developing from what you know whitehead whitehead was you know in the center of things back in the 20s and 30s. You know, he, he had his own theory of relativity because he felt that Einstein's metaphysical approach was wrong and was, I mean, was highly respected and, you know, taken very seriously by philosophers. And then, you know, as the analytic and postmodern movements sort of filtered through America, you know, copying Europe, uh, it, you know, all that kind of, dis there few only a few universities remained so traditional. And Emory was one of them where I went. And uh, Claremont uh, Theology School, John Cobb was, and David Griffin. And the Claremont Graduate School was another. And they started the Journal for Process Studies because it was difficult to get articles published, you know, on Whitehead anywhere else. Um, I, th I think there's been a big change maybe over the last 10 or 15 years. Roland Faber came to Claremont from Austria 
and I did a lot for reaching out to your, you know, appealed a lot more to some of the European Whiteheadians because because he's European. I don't I don't know, and he's a very 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 rigorous thinker, uh, and, and I don't know how much of, of that was responsible for it, but it looks to me like there's a lot more a lot more interest in Europe. And developing, I think, more interest in America. Also, you're right, China. You know, they, there's uh, two people, Jaha and May. Okay, uh, she was a professor of literature at Beijing Normal University, and he was uh, at a, a social science research center, and he got interested in Whitehead. So he came to, they came to Claremont, he got a PhD in Whitehead, and the two of them have uh, really created a, a movement in China. There's an, you know, 20 or 30 centers for process thought at universities. And recently they ran into, you know, I, I think the, some of the powers that be got a little nervous, you know, that there was this you know, Western movement sort of associated with Christianity, you know, from Claremont. And so they kind of shut the, you know, this propaganda came out against it. But I, I think once, you know, they're very, um, you know, what Whitehead's thought is very amenable to Asian thought. You know, at one point he says uh, that his philosophy is closer to certain strains of Asiatic thought than to Western thought. And so they, they you know, the Confucius, or whether Confucius or Taoist or Buddhist, they, they have a lot of, they, they like Whitehead's approaches. And uh, so I've gone to a few, I've gone, to, I've gone over there a couple of times, going to conferences and you know, there's always huge audiences in China because there's so so many people there. But there's a, there's a lot of you know, Jahan may put on uh, the you know these uh, do things online, you know, the conferences, and you know there'll be hundreds of thousands of people that have you know signed in or so. So there's a movement there, I, I believe, that's real, depending on the government how that goes. And uh, in the states, I, th I think things are coming around in the states. For, I think in the philosophy and departments in general, I think have to, you know, have to give up on the analytic and and postmodernism seems to have sort of used up its energy. And you know, some places are just closing down. Here in Wisconsin, the university that like, closed down the history department and the philosophy department. Hmm. Not not at Madison yet, but there's branch universities. And I think in England, the philosophy departments have been crushed by analytic philosophy. Yeah, and. and so hopefully, hopefully this will fill that void, because I think you know things got great, great possibilities. And uh, sorry, I can't give you something more concrete uh, versus America. No, no, I was just uh, thinking about like a, a general sense of like um, you know that, uh, and it's good to hear that uh, there's um, uh, that you see that there's movement and there's there's some growth and and interest. Uh, that's that's because as you said i mean with this analytical philosophy or analytic philosophy it's just a it's kind of like a dead end you you read these papers and it's like you know i mean it's just yeah what gives you know and and the, the same with the you know postmodernist uh, streaks in continental philosophy it's like it's it's all politicized and you know if i want to read marx you know i read marx you know and but uh <laughs> i don't uh <laughs> I, I don't need like a, a philosophy like uh, you know like course um where everything's you know and and, and so, so yeah um something needs to be done i guess or, or change and and i'm glad to hear that there's at least like an uptick or like an interest let's say i think i think psychedelics may play a role also i we, a friend and i uh 
some friends and I organized a conference in Claremont on, you know, can extraordinary experience help save the world? You know, it was a little ambitious, but they brought in some people that they'd met at a conference over in Europe from uh, a, uh, a lecturer at Exeter University. And he and one of his students came. And then a couple of years later, we did a conference at Exeter on uh, on well, on psychedelics, but also on, on process philosophy. And people were very interested. And you know, he's starting a psychedelics program there. And they have, you know, tons of people that want to be doing this. And you know, he's you know, he's he's Whitehead and Spinoza. And he also like thinks Whitehead's better, but he loves Spinoza. And uh, so I, I think. You know, I, 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 in, in, you know, I keep finding, you know, these people keep sort of popping up that I, I it was the unknown way. I think there just hasn't been a, a, uh, you know, official academic, you know, you know, large scale way to get into the, you know, the Sorbonne or, you know, but um, I think there've been a lot of people who've been interested in Whitehead and, and once a community develops better and starts getting infiltrating more into universities it really should take off, I think. David Gray, John Cobb put on this conference in 2015 in Claremont where 1,500 people came. And it was like 50 different tracks and all. He's trying to jumpstart things. And David Ray Griffin gave one of the keynote lectures and he said that he, that he foresaw that the 21st century would be a Whiteheadian century. <laughs> and it was his ambitious vision. Mm. Assuming we survived the 21st century. Well, did you guys have any any last questions? We've been going about an hour and a half. I think that's probably a good a good spot to stop. Unless, uh, John, do you have any final thoughts or or things that come to mind to close oh. us out with? Final thoughts. Um. My, my friend who I put on those conferences, uh, he's very big on, on on the Greeks, and he loves to compare the the psychedelics and Whitehead to the he's trying, he's trying to get kind of a mystery school like the Elysian Mysteries. So, you know, with a philosophy and an experience and to bring experience back into philosophy. And, um, I, you know, that that's what got me interested in the first place. I, I really hadn't thought about, you know, I studied psych- a little psychology in high school, but it was having some experiences that I wanted to understand is what got me excited and intrigued. So I, th- I think he's onto something there. And uh, now that that's enough. All right. <laughs> well, again, for listeners, or go ahead, Luke. No, I was just going to say, uh, get get uh, uh, his book, everybody. Um, I'm in the not finished yet uh, camp, uh, but uh, it's really great. So <laughs> There are many admirable people in that camp with you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Again, the book is Processing Reality by John Buchanan. We'll have a link in the in the show description, also to John's website where he's got some uh, some blurbs, some articles, his uh, his all, all, you know names of all the things he's written, and uh, some other talks. So if anyone else wants to check out John's other work we will be providing that. And uh, w- one final thought or one final thing. Um, when last time we talked after we afterwards, you recommended a couple books to me and sent me a copy of Olaf Stapledon's Star Maker, which makes several appearances in this book. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. It was a <laughs> it's one of those books that's kind of uh, really imaginative and uh, gives a, a really interesting picture of a world that may be 
It's not it's not everyone's cup of tea, but Stapleton. Yeah, is it's not it's not a novel. You know, it's not a sci-fi novel the way you're expecting it to be. But it's a his Whiteheadian Marxist speculative vision of yes. the purpose and meaning of the universe <laughs> and all universes. So it's pretty pretty, mm-hmm. pretty broad broad scope. Uh, John, I, I mentioned in there, John Lilly, who for the he was probably may have been the person who did more studies and experience, not ordinary experiences of almost anybody in the universe. On the back of the uh, 50th anniversary edition of Star Maker, he, his blurb was something like, Star Maker is the only book I have ever encountered that that can take in take into account every experience, all of my entire range of experiences that I've had. <laughs> so he's, and, and he, he used to be, you know, doing ketamine and writing about alien civilizations and things. So he's, he's had a wide range of experience. All right. Great. Well, on that note, thanks again, John. It's been a blast talking to you and, uh, thank you. Thank yeah. you guys. For we'll we'll have you on again here. eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it. Yeah. Thanks. All right. John. Take care. Take care.